Section 36 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 62, The Fall of the Great Administration, Part 1. The first few days of 1873 were marked by an event which, had it occurred four or five years before, would have filled the world with a profound sensation. Happening as it did, it made comparatively little stir in the political waters. It was the death of Louis Napoleon, late Emperor of the French, at his house in Chislehurst, Kent. After his imprisonment, if it can be called so, at Wilhelmshohe in Kassel, where he was treated as an honoured guest rather than a captive, the fallen Emperor came to England. He settled with his wife and son at Chislehurst and lived in dignified semi-retirement. The emperor became a sort of favourite with the public here. A reaction seemed to have set in against the dread and dislike with which he had at one time been regarded. He enjoyed a certain amount of popularity. He sometimes showed himself in public, as, for example, at a lecture given by Mr. Stanley, the adventurous New York special correspondent, who had gone out to Africa and discovered Dr. Livingston. Louis Napoleon had for a long time been in sinking health. His life had been overwrought in every way. He had lived many lives in a comparatively short space of time. Most of his friends had long been expecting his death from week to week, almost from day to day. He died on January 9th. The event created no great sensation. Perhaps even the news of his death was but an anticlimax after the news of his fall. For twenty years he had filled a space in the eyes of the world with which the importance of no man else could pretend to compare. His political bulk had towered up in European affairs like some huge castle dominating over a city. All the earth listened to the lightest word he spoke. For good or evil, his influence and his name were potent in every corner of the globe. His nod convulsed continents. His arms glittered from the Crimea to Cochin China, from Algeria to Mexico. A signal from him and the dominion of the Austrians over Lombardy was broken at Solferino, and a new Italy arose on the horizon of Europe. A whisper from him and Maximilian of Austria hastens across the ocean in hope to found a Mexican empire, in reality to find a premature grave. A wave of his hand on Garibaldi is crushed at Mentana. What wonder if such a man should at one time have come to believe himself the special favourite and the spoilt child of destiny? The whole condition of things seemed changed when Louis Napoleon fell at Sedan. Some forty years of wandering, of obscurity, of futile, almost ludicrous enterprises, of exile, of imprisonment, of the world's contempt, and then twenty years of splendid success, of supreme sovereignty, had led him to this, to the disgrace of Sidon, to the quiet fading days of Chislehurst. He had overshadowed France and Europe with the gloom of his glory, and now, to borrow John Evelyn's words, is all in the dust. In one of his Napoleonic ballads, Béranger speaking of the fall of the first emperor, 
bitterly declares that the kings of europe who despise him in his exile once crawl round his throne and still bear on their brows the traces of the dust which his footprint left when he set his conqueror's heel upon their heads europe had certainly at one time showed an inclination to grovel before louis napoleon's throne he was regarded as a statesman of mysterious infallible superhuman wisdom he was understood to be a brutus who had for a long time professed idiotcy in order to conceal inspiration when he fell the world shook its wise head pityingly and seemed inclined to fall back upon the opinion that it must have been only idiotcy trying to assume the oracular ways of inspiration toward the closing days there was a revival of a kindlier feeling and a fairer judgment louis napoleon had in his early and obscure days lived in lodgings in king street st james and when he became a great emperor a tablet was set up in the outer wall of the house to inform all the world of the fact he came to london in the zenith of his power and his fame and he drove by the house and looked at the tablet and said something oracular and appropriate no doubt and the newspapers chronicled the event and the world admired when he came back again after sedan there was no account of his driving past the old place if he did so but the tablet had not been taken down it is only right to say that much it was allowed to remain there even though louis napoleon had fallen never to hope again perhaps we cannot better illustrate the manner in which the english public received him on his late return there was no further allusion to the tablet but it was not taken down death was very busy about this time with men whose names had made deep mark on history or letters lord lytton the brilliant novelist the successful dramatist the composer of marvellous parliamentary speeches died on january eighteenth eighteen seventy three dr livingston the famous missionary and explorer had hardly been discovered among the living by the enterprise and energy of mr stanley when the world learned that he was dead so many false reports of his death had been sent about at different times that the statement now was received with incredulity the truth had to be confirmed on testimony beyond dispute before england would accept the fact that the long career of devotion to the one pursuit was over and that africa had had another victim john stuart mill died on may eighth eighteen seventy three at his home at avignon where the tomb of his wife was made there's a great spirit gone was the word of all men a loftier and purer soul more truly devoted to the quest of the truth had not mingled in the worldly affairs of our time there were clear evidences in the later writings of mr mill published after his death that he had been turning toward a different point in quest of the truth from that on which early training and long habit had formerly fixed his mind his influence over the thought and culture of his day was immense time has even already begun to show it in some decay but most of mr mill's writings may safely be regarded as the possession of all the future and he has left an example of candour and investigation and fearless moral purpose in action such as might well leaven even the most thoughtless and cynical generation a sudden accident the stumble of a horse 
brought to a close on july nineteenth the career of the bishop of winchester the many-sided energetic eloquent samuel wilberforce he had tried to succeed in everything and he went near success he tried to know everybody and understand everybody's way of looking at every question he was a great pulpit and parliamentary orator a great bishop a wit a scholar an accomplished man of the world in a different and more honourable sense than that conveyed in dryden's famous line he was everything by starts but he was a good man and a good minister always on the very day after the death of the bishop of winchester died lord westbury who had been lord chancellor a man of great ability unsurpassed as a lawyer in his time endowed with as bitter a tongue and as vitriolic a wit as ever cursed their possessor lord westbury was a failure in spite of all his gifts partly because of a certain want of moral elevation in his nature it is only justice to his memory to say that he was in many ways the victim of the errors of some to whom his affections made him too lenient from one cause and another the close of his career became but a heap of ruins the deaths of sir edwin landseer the painter sir henry holland the famous physician and traveller whose patients and personal friends were emperors kings presidents and prime ministers and of professor sedgwick the geologist ought to be mentioned nor must we omit from our death-roll the name of dr lushington who in addition to his own personal distinction is likely to be remembered as the depository of a secret confided to him in an earlier generation by lady byron the secret of the charge she had made against her husband the whole story was revived before dr lussington's death by a painful controversy but he refused even by a yes or no to reveal lady byron's confidence the year which saw so many deaths was a trying time for the liberal government the session of that year would in any case have brought them over what may be called the grand climacteric of the parliament the novelty of the reforming administration was well-nigh worn off and there was yet some work which mr gladstone was pledged to do here and there when it happened that the death or retirement of a member of parliament gave an opportunity for a new election it seemed of late to happen that the election went generally against the government the conservatives were plucking up a spirit everywhere and were looking closely after their organization mr disraeli himself had taken to going round the country doing what would be called in america stump oratory and doing it remarkably well in the crystal palace of london in the free trade hall and the pomona gardens of manchester in the conservative association of glasgow and in other places he had addressed great assemblages and denounced and ridiculed the liberal government in the manchester free trade hall he made use of a remarkably happy expression his rivals had entered into office he said with a policy of violence of sacrilege and of confiscation and now having done their work they sat in a row on the treasury benches reminding him as he gazed across the table at them of a range of extinct volcanoes the government had been unlucky in the naval department some of their ships had met with fatal accidents 
and it was complained that there was defective organization and imperfect inspection in one of his speeches mr disraeli had spoken of a new difficulty in irish politics and a new form of agitation that had arisen in ireland the home rule organization had sprung suddenly into existence the home rule agitation came in its first organized form mainly from the inspiration of irish protestants the disestablishment of the church had filled most of the protestants of ireland with hatred of mr gladstone and distrust of the imperial parliament and english parties it was therefore thought by some of them that the time had come when irishmen of all sects and parties had better trust to themselves and to their united efforts than to any english minister parliament or party partly in a petulant mood partly in despondency partly out of genuine patriotic impulse some of the irish protestants set going the movement for home rule but although the actual movement came into being in that way the desire for a native parliament had always lived among large classes of the irish people attempts were always being made to construct something like a regular organization with such an object the process of pacification was going on but slowly it could only be slow in any case the effects of centuries of bad legislation could not by any human possibility be effaced by two or three years of better government but there were many irishmen who themselves patient and moderate saw with distinctness that the feeling of disaffection or at least of discontent among the irish people was not to be charmed away even by such measures as the disestablishment of the irish church they saw what english statesmen would not or could not see that the one strong feeling in the breast of a large proportion of the population of ireland was dislike to the rule of an english parliament the national sentiment rightly or wrongly for good or ill had grown so powerful that it could not be overcome by mere concessions in this or that detail of legislation these irishmen of moderate views felt convinced that there were only two alternatives before england either she must give back to ireland some form of national parliament or she must go on putting down rebellion after rebellion and dealing with ireland as russia had dealt with poland they therefore welcomed the home rule movement and conscientiously believed that it would open the way to a genuine reconciliation between england and ireland on conditions of fair copartnership the author of this history is for obvious reasons not inclined to discuss here the merits of the home rule demand but he desires to put it on historical record that those who were chiefly concerned in promoting that movement were filled with the conviction that the principle of home rule contained the solution of the great problem of government which unsolved had so long divided england and ireland and offered a means of complete reconciliation between the two countries several irish elections took place about the time when the home rule movement had been fairly started they were fought out on the question for or against home rule and the home rulers were successful the leadership of the new party came almost as a matter of course into the hands of mr butt who returned to parliament after a considerable time of exile from political life mr butt was a man of great ability 
legal knowledge, and historical culture. He had begun life as a conservative and an opponent of O'Connell. He had become one of the orators of the short-lived attempt at a protectionist reaction in England. He was taken up by the leading protectionists, who were themselves somewhat deficient in intellect and eloquence, and who could not induce men like Mr. Disraeli to trouble themselves any more about the lost cause. Mr. Butt was a lawyer of great skill and success in his profession. As an advocate, he had for years not arrived at the Irish bar. He had taken part in the defense of Smith O'Brien and Mayer at Clonmel in 1848, and when the Fenian movements broke out, he undertook the defense of many Fenian prisoners. He became gradually drawn away from conservatism and brought round to nationalism. For some reason or other, the conservative chiefs had neglected him. There is extant a letter from a once conspicuous and clever unofficial conservative, in which, among other pieces of advice, to a leader of the party he recommends him to buy but. The frank cynicism of the advice was a proof that the writer did not understand Mr. Butt. It is certain that Mr. Butt was not a prudent man, and that he did not manage his private affairs well. There can be no doubt that he often fell into embarrassments which might have made observers think he would have welcomed any means of extrication. But it is certain that he was politically honest, even to chivalrous forgetfulness of his own most legitimate interests. Perhaps the neglect of the conservative chiefs came from their observation of the fact that Mr. Butt was gradually passing over from their side. Perhaps it was due to other and personal causes. Mr. Butt dropped entirely out of public life for a while, and when he reappeared, it was as the leader of the new Home Rule movement. There was not then in Irish politics any man who could pretend to be his rival. He was a speaker at once powerful and plausible. He had a thorough knowledge of the constitutional history and the technical procedures of Parliament, and he could talk to an Irish monster meeting with vivacity and energy. Almost in a moment a regular home rule party was set up in the House of Commons. Popular Irish members who had been elected previous to the organization of the movement gave in their adhesion to it, and there was in fact a sudden revival of the constitutional movement for the satisfaction of Irish national claims, which had fallen asleep after the death of O'Connell and the failure of the Young Ireland Rebellion of 1848. The Home Rule movement unquestionably put Mr. Gladstone in a new difficulty. The press and the public men of England failed altogether at first to appreciate the strength of the demand for Home Rule. Many voices cried out that no English statesman must listen to it, not to say condescend to argue with it. It was to be simply brushed away as a nuisance, bidden like a fretful child to hold its tongue and go to sleep. Mr. Gladstone was not a man to deal with political questions in that sort of way. He showed an anxiety to understand the new agitation and its objects. He asked questions of one or two prominent Irishmen. He even answered questions civilly addressed to him. He showed a willingness at least to receive information with regard to home rule. In the eyes of some jealous patriots in England, such conduct was in itself a tampering with the question, an encouragement of the agitation, and a conniving at the designs of wicked men who were anxious to dismember the empire. 
it was now certain that when parliament met an organized home rule party would be found there and a good many strong conservatives and weak liberals were inclined to hold mr gladstone's irish policy responsible for the uprise of this new agitation there seemed to be an idea that if irishmen got any measure of justice accorded to them they ought not to seek for anything more and that if they were so perverse and ungrateful as to ask for more a large part of the guilt of their ingratitude must be put to the account of the minister who had been wrong-headed enough to give them any justice at all the prospects were on the whole growing somewhat ominous for the liberal government not only the conservative party were plucking up a spirit but the house of lords had more than once made it clear that they felt themselves emboldened to deal as they thought fit with measures sent up to them from the house of commons when the peers begin to be firm and assert their dignity it may always be taken for granted that there is not much popular force at the back of the government parliament met on february sixth eighteen seventy three the royal speech announced that a measure will be submitted to you on an early day for settling the question of university education in ireland it will have for its object the advancement of learning in that portion of my dominions and will be framed with a careful regard to the rights of conscience on february thirteenth mr gladstone introduced his measure it is a remarkable illustration of the legislative energy with which the government were even yet filled that on the very same night at the very same hour two great schemes of reform reform which to slow and timid minds must have seemed something like revolution were introduced into parliament one was the irish university education bill which mr gladstone was explaining in the house of commons the other was a measure to abolish the appellate jurisdiction of the house of lords and establish a judicial court of appeal in its stead this latter measure was introduced by lord selborne lately sir roundell palmer who had been raised to the office of lord chancellor on the resignation of lord hatherley whose eyesight was temporarily affected great as the change was which lord selborne proposed to introduce public attention paid comparatively little heed to it at that moment every one watched with eager interest the development of mr gladstone's most critical scheme for the improvement of university education in ireland irish university education was indeed in a very anomalous condition ireland had two universities that of dublin which was then a distinctly protestant institution and the queen's university which was established on a strictly secular system and which the heads of the catholic church had on that account condemned in a country with a population of whom five-sixths were catholics there was one chartered university which would not accept the catholic as such and another which the catholic as such would not accept this is a rough but accurate description of the condition of things the remedy one might have thought would have been obvious in an ordinary case the catholic themselves asked for a chartered catholic university the answer made by most englishmen was that to grant a charter to a catholic university would be to run the risk of lowering the national standard of education and that to grant any state aid to a catholic university would be to endow a sectarian institution out of public funds 
the catholic made rejoinder that a mere speculative dread of lowering the common standard of university education was hardly a reason why five-sixths of the population of ireland should have no university education of that kind at all that the university of dublin was in essence a state-endowed institution and that the queen's university was founded by state money on a principle which excluded the vast majority of catholics from its advantages End of section 36